Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Once we have finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new replacement list we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is uh, The Hills Animate with the Euphonious Symphonies of Descant. Uh, what if he sings the hills are vital, intoning the descant, the hills quake and shake, the hills are incarnate with symphonic melodies. Should I go for this? Yes. Okay, hold on, let me back up from the mic a little bit. <laughs> mic control, mic control. Mic control. The hills are alive! With the sound of music. No, 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 no. I thought you were going to do the better writing of it. Oh, I thought I was going to just continue doing the um, the swirling around on, on the hilltops and all. But that's our... You didn't even spin once. I'm insulted. I can't... There are so many wires. I can't spin. <laughs> not with that uh, attitude. <laughs> no, well, I'm trying to make sure that the podcast is not hey, completely derailed. They were derailed. being chased by Nazis and they found time to spin. Not yet. Not well fair. Shoot, there was a there was a significant <laughs> dearth of Nazi chasing at the time. So this is this is Robert Wise's 1965 super mega hit, "The Sound of Music," uh, with Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer, and just a huge number of children. Uh, so this is a movie that I think everyone has seen. It is my my pick for every mom's favorite movie. If you are a mother. It doesn't matter what your favorite movie used to be. This will turn into your favorite movie. What do you got on this? Well, no, now I'm just thinking of what I think my mother's favorite movie is. And it, I'll get back to you on that, but it's, it's decidedly something weird, but I agree with you in general <laughs> that this is every mother's favorite movie. Um, which one is the worst child actor? Okay, so this is actually kind of fun. So I have a friend who I watched this with a few years ago. I've got to pull up everybody's everybody's name here, but the one who the one who freaks me out the most, and I didn't realize this was a problem until she pointed it out. Um, Nicholas Hammond, who is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> which is just an absolutely incredible. Um, incredible movie game thing nicholas hammond plays friedrich and the way he looks at julie andrews through all of this is creepy it's creepy it completely derailed the movie for me because he was so creepy looking (laughs) like it's it's almost hard to like do the rest of the movie when you're watching him be that that freaky um so i nominate nicholas hammond later a supporting actor in a late stage Tarantino just to show that this really, this is like one of those um, Cleopatra and the woolly mammoths or John Tyler's grandsons thing 
Like, this movie may be, what, from the 1960s, so it is it is many decades old now, but it's not that far away. It is definitely still close enough where a lot of the child actors in particular are still still kicking and still running around places. Well, it'll be 60 years old soon. Yeah. 25, yeah. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, also, yeah, that's really good for movie game because, I mean... That gets you to Pitt and DiCaprio and Andrews and Plummer. You should be able to get anywhere from there. That's what I mean. I think there's actually, um, if you're going to go back in time and like do one of those cross-generational movie games, which I think are the real ones, uh, it also gets you Richard Hyden and Eleanor Parker, who were stars in the 40s and 50s. So you can like, you can really do some stuff once you get there. Um. Why is this every mother's favorite movie, Tim? Well, as the mother of several children, uh, I think... One real bad orange one. <laughs> as the preferred associate of a very badly behaved orange cat, I think I think that this hits a real sweet spot for a lot of... I mean, a lot of people. Like, I don't, I don't want to just say that this is only a mom thing because i feel like that that has like a aspire like others as well yeah you know like i think i think when we talk about the dad movie i actually like when we talk about dad movies i actually kind of mean to denigrate them more than mom movies just because there is a canon of dad movies and a lot of them are really not all that good <laughs> and and for for mom movies i think there are a number of them that a lot of moms like, and and we have a habit of kind of pushing them away. Um, this is one that I think was so popular because, like, like I was sort of going before, it's it's a movie that has everything. It has a genuine romantic um, romantic subplot to it. Christopher Plummer is very young and very good looking in this. Uh, it has the sense of of nerd- remember he was young it's so funny because people like remember christopher Plummer from you know from knives out or something like people who like got into movies and like they just will not think that's the same guy from the sound of music like you can genuinely blow someone's mind with that and i know this because i've done it so like <laughs> it's the kind of thing that that you can definitely still do um but he's very handsome and very charming and very uh, imperious in this. Uh, but, you know, the idea that a good woman can kind of soften that hard exterior and, and melt that down and turn it into um, folk singing putty in the right the right uh, amounts, that's very attractive. The idea of being the good mom, I think, is attractive, which Maria accomplishes through being herself. Like I think it's it's just a, a mixture of gentleness, kindness, and and realness that makes the kids like her. It's not just that she's Julie Andrews, but like the idea um, that she that she really does try to meet them where they are, and and I think that's just a, a good way to interact with kids generally. You know, the idea that if you actually try to meet them 
in their own scenarios and understand them, that will go a lot further than just telling them what to do. Uh, and there's also the the sort of sweeping vista aspect of this. Like this really is kind of an epic movie. It's shot like an epic movie. There are a lot of helicopter shots, and and I don't just mean the beginning and ending. There are a lot of of big shots, big crane shots, helicopter shots, all of that stuff that makes this feel like you know the Lawrence of Arabia for moms, uh, which in a sense it it kind of is. Uh, and of course, we haven't even talked about the most important part of this movie, which is Julie Andrews singing. Um, not that other people singing doesn't matter, but when Julie Andrews sings, everybody else gets to shut up and listen as far as I'm concerned. So so that's that's my Sound of Music basic spiel. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we've been doing this more and more for, for my half of the podcast, which makes sense because we are going towards the top here. Yeah, we're going towards the top, so it makes sense that we don't have to do a lot of plot synopsis. Um, but I really... I really feel like no one needs sound of music explained to them. It's a movie that everyone has everyone has seen, I'm pretty sure, and even if you haven't seen it, the familiarity with it is just absolutely everywhere. It's been popular for basically the whole time uh, that it's existed, even though kind of interestingly, like Cabaret, the stage version is fairly different. Uh, different songs, different numbers, different emphases, uh, and of course Mary Martin is not like Julie Andrews. So there's a lot about how this movie has sort of overtaken the original stage show, uh, which of course was well-received and well-liked. So that's, uh, I actually wanted to ask you that since we don't really have to <clears throat> explain the sound of music. <laughs> Get into what happens. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they twirl in the field. There you go. Um, and in the gazebo. And they, yeah, that's true. They twirl. <laughs> they just twirl. It's a lot of twirling around the bed. Yeah. Uh, so which do you? And then they sing while they're on the stairs. It's you know. It, ah. Um. Which do you like more, the movie or the stage show? The movie, which is interesting because I actually I have the opposite reaction for Cabaret. Cabaret, I I really strongly prefer the stage show. I think that it's doing a lot more interesting stuff. Um, which stage show? <laughs> I usually go with the um, with the Alan Cumming, yeah. like turn of the century one. That's that's sort of the benchmark for me, which of course is pulling a lot from the from the movie musical, but it keeps in so much of the original content from the from the stage musical that I I think it's the right it's the right mixture. We will we will actually talk a little bit about a change in the in the the stage show as it was made into a movie here but that's something that's something that should wait a little bit because that's that's thematic for me do you like this movie yeah (laughs) i find it perfectly okay (laughs) and then just kind of don't think about it for long stretches of time I like I haven't seen it in a long time. I should probably give it another go. It's just one of those movies that I'm like, okay, that's fine. I see why why it's so loved. Just kind of not my thing, um, and not really for a specific reason. It's just like I that was a pleasant movie. I just don't 
think about a whole lot except when like individual references come up like <clears throat> I, I i think it's a well-memed movie uh before mm. memes were even a thing so like it still exists for me in that way certainly but i i don't know that i like or dislike i just like yeah i know that's a like rousing assessment but <laughs> that's just sort of where i'm at no what it reminds me of is that line from to kill a mockingbird where scout is explaining how she's been able to read as long as she can remember and she's like until it was threatened that it could be taken away from me i didn't love reading because one does not love breathing like there's just yeah. like there's a level of we like saying cultural osmosis here, but I mean, the cultural osmosis for this movie is just absolutely inescapable. If there was, if there's any one example of that, which we, we do throw that around, but it, it's this, like it's this, yeah. it's, it's uh, this movie. I, that's interesting. I, that's probably true of what it would be for me. Like if suddenly the sound of music was going to disappear, then I'd probably be like, well, wait a minute. Um, I love Julie Andrews uh, as everyone should. <laughs> and that's a, the coldest take possible, but just, <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess, it's good to have cold takes occasionally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we just have to reaffirm that some things are good. Um, but yeah, I guess like, maybe it is one of those instances it's just like everyone knows it so many other people love it like maybe there's some degree to i like i just don't feel like i really have a contribution so the movie's there and cool <laughs> um so yeah it's not it's not it's certainly not a love um i don't dislike it like i think it's a good movie um but it's also just not one i really think about or return to uh often at all can i can i do an off the cuff thing real quick i love those all right so if i were making a list of the let's say the five most popular movies most popular most beloved say what you will we can we can quibble about that later but like if we were to make specific of american movies from the 20th century okay the top five i'm gonna i'm gonna try no, I'm just doing this off the cuff. We can order it. But I would say Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. Sound of Music, okay. Titanic, yep. Star Wars. I definitely agree with three of those. Okay. I probably agree with Star Wars. I know. That's the last one for me. I'm trying to decide if that, that should be a different really- 70s movie. So that one's weird to me because Star Wars is a property, absolutely. But, like, is there... I mean, I know it's A New Hope, but, like, is there an individual movie that we can say, like, everyone knows that one specifically and separate that from everyone knows what Star Wars is? As much as anything else, I'm thinking just about the way that that the first one obliterated the box office. Like, even in a way that Godfather and Jaws didn't, I'm sort of thinking about it in terms, too, of, like, it just made money. No, I (laughs) I think think that, no, that's true. I mean, I don't think that's true. That's literally true. (laughs) Another cold take. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm thinking of it more from, like, is there too much of it now that it's just, like, Star Wars is, like, a blob. It's too brand as opposed to, and, and I wonder... 
That, like, like what, that's my only thing. Like Star Wars as a whole, absolutely. Like it may be the most popular thing, but is there just too much of it now for like younger folks? I guess is what I'm I'm uh, pondering. Okay, okay. So I'll 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 definitely think about about really, that. Which which is a good running. point it's because running, certainly. <laughs> when you say that, I think like, well, what's the most quoted? part of star wars and the most quoted part of star wars is the empire strikes back empire yeah Yeah, so that's that's an interesting distinction i like that um i take is titanic the other one that you think is not on that list no i think titanic's fair i i'm just wondering about gone with the wind now i just think there are a lot of old people well that's sort of why i'm wondering about it (laughs) i'm kind of thinking about this from the angle too of like do i think they will stay there and I think, oh, uh, for me, that's not an issue. For this. <laughs> oh, if I you're just talking right this minute. Then I'm, yeah, gone yeah I, I just think I think Gone with the Wind. If the Wizard of Oz didn't exist, I think Gone with the Wind would still be the most popular movie in American history. Okay, and so and it and it was, I think, yeah. Even while it was coexisting with Wizard of Oz, I think Wizard of Oz has only taken over because of TV, home video, stuff like that. Okay, so if yeah, if we're talking literally just right this minute, yeah, those four, I'd still have the same question about Star Wars. Um, I was doing like a, what are the chances it's still that it's still there in like five, ten years? And like, then I does have questions about Gone with the Wind? But is um, it's a Wonderful Life the thing that gets in there instead? Maybe that could be it. I could see that. Is Godfather big enough? I don't know. I sort of wonder about that. Like, I think, that I think for, Sorry. go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was you... going to say that, that might be one that like, I think enough people know stuff from the Godfather for it to be there, but I don't know that enough people know like the movie as a whole, if that makes sense. Like it's kind of similar to the star Wars thing, maybe. I yeah no yeah. I, I'm on that on that train too the, like the level of familiarity just has yeah. more to do with being part of it as opposed to like I don't I think people are are generally even more passionate about like Goodfellas but I yeah. think the Godfather is such a, a template that it's you know what I mean like I think it, yeah, it's yeah. it's not quite got template plus passion even though obviously so many people care and like if this were if this were top 15 or 20, I know I would put it on there without question. Yeah. You want me to throw some other options at you? And just yeah, like... let's let's get weird. All right. Uh, I don't know if these are oddball or not, but I'm going to start with the Spielberg of it all. So E.T. or Jurassic Park? I was thinking E.T. or Jaws. Jaws is another one for me. Like, I don't know how many re- people remember all that happens in that movie so much as they remember Shark. <laughs> Yeah, like that, I'm, E.T. is a top 10 one. I think yeah. E.T. is a top 10. I don't know. I was I was feeling bad that I didn't have a Spielberg in my top five, which is very funny. I've never said that before. But um, <laughs> yeah, but he probably has like three in the top 20. But so there whatever. are a lot in the top 20. I think I think yeah. E.T. is the one there. OK. Um, oh, what else? I had some other ones in mind. Um, uh, could it be a. I don't know. Like, is Lion King? That's. I was. I was wondering about or Disney Snow White too, or something. 
Yeah, just like Disney has some of the, I mean, on purpose, it has the same problems as Star Wars at this point, I think. Um, That one is just so, it's so fractured, like a Disney thing for sure. Which Disney thing everyone has their favorite. Um, what else can I pull out here? It's you know, if you'd ask, life I find interesting. Is if you if you'd asked about um the Disney thing for like just the 20th century, I actually think Snow White, Pinocchio, or Bambi would get on there. But I now I I wouldn't say so. Well, I could I I mean I could see I mean I think the advantage Disney has over Star Wars here, so to speak, is that (laughs) they're different enough. Like, I think people can separate Snow White and, like, know Snow White, the Disney movie, in Mm -hmm. a way that, like, the Star Wars stuff can kind of run together because there's so much of it. Yeah. Um, um, Like, I think the Disney movies are distinct enough and not all about the same family that because they don't yeah actively bring back the same people over and over again right um anyway uh, you were saying about it's a wonderful life no i find that that's yeah no i think that's a i think that's an, a, a good option um and then i was just going to make a joke about is it a christmas story since it plays every christmas all day <laughs> if you ask my my aunt she would say yes <laughs> <laughs> um i don't i'm in on what would i put as the fit i might put what would i know i don't know i sort of wonder about et now i think maybe that's the one that's speaking to me most but i don't i think that fifth spot is really interesting it's it's interesting because this yeah. is actually a mount rushmore discussion and not a top five five yeah the, like the four seem clear yeah uh, yeah you want to rank them <laughs> i mean wizard of oz has to go first and then yeah, that seems fair yeah like i i really do think that is like the most loved movie I, in in history no no matter where or when i'd probably put sound of music second yeah sound just, of, sound of music goes second or third yeah i think second and then gone with the wind third titanic fourth I may even switch those honestly, but I wouldn't fight that. I yeah, think th- I think it's Wizard One. I would put Sound of Music Two, but I, again, I would, I wouldn't bump Wizard off of one. But I could hear Sound of Music not being second, but I would have it second, and then three and four. Personally, I'd probably put Titanic three, just on like anecdotal evidence. Totally anecdotal, but like. I'm not going to fight the order of those two that hard. <laughs> yeah. Now one of they're both unfinished faces on the right. And I think the yeah. wizard of Oz is clearly the, the George Washington of all of this. Yeah. I mean, the answer is just have a, have a few good songs and then one of the three or four best popular singers ever. I mean, it's very easy to just make the most, the most beloved movie ever. <laughs> so- such a simple formula all you need is just one of no you need two of judy garland julie andrews over the rainbow climb every mountain and the sound of music you just have to create that that's very it's it's just the easiest thing in the world um cute dog helps cute dog cute kids i mean some of the kids are cute yeah like gretel is cute gretel was was a cute kid 
Only the one is actively creepy. <laughs> I think. No, I totally agree with that. I don't Friedrich Friedrich weirds me out, man. And I hope I hope that everyone can go. I'm this is like one of my one of my most important movie evangelism things is to go back and watch The Sound of Music, especially like it's no one's first time seeing The Sound of Music, but like if it's your second or third time or your 50th time, go back and just watch Friedrich and see how <laughs> how that boy's neck cranes to get closer to Julie Andrews and it just changes everything. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I had responses, but none of them are, <laughs> are good. So. Dude's a creep. All right. I think, I think we should probably move on. The Sound of Music. It's a movie that you know. It's a movie that even if there are parts of it you don't like, you probably like at least a little. It's part of you. It's like the plastic that it's part of all of us. Yeah, like it's yeah. got that same level of you can't get rid of it. It's in all of us. We all know what it's doing. It'll and never degrade. It'll never degrade. And your mom loves it. Um, What are we going to do for Wizard of Oz now? We just ruined the most popular bit. <laughs> oh, there's always something. Yeah, I know, but there's always something. <laughs> it's true. I have sort of blown through the um, most beloved movie of all time thing and my Judy Garland episode. I feel like I've kind of <laughs> kind of ruined that, huh? We got a while. We'll figure it out. We have a while. So the theme for The Sound of Music is I must have done something good. Matt will get to choose which movie best suits that theme based on the arguments presented. And of course, all chosen movies head to their subtitles replacement list. Remember, the goal is not to choose the work that's best or most important, but to choose the one that best suits the theme. So like I promised before, uh, the song Something Good, which is not, I think, one of the most popular songs from from the sound of music like we've mentioned the sound of music and climb every mountain uh i think i would of course put the i hate the do re mi song whatever um that one has to be above this i mean most of the songs are um but something good is a is a song which is very slow it's a romantic song it's the second gazebo song of the, of the movie <laughs> Is the gazebo your favorite part? Oh, boy. I mean, there's just something... I just feel like you can understand this movie so well if you're like, there are two separate romantic numbers in the gazebo with two different couples, and people go, oh, it's that kind of movie. It's a yeah. two romantic gazebos movie. Uh, so this one... <laughs> the second song that they do there is is called Something Good. Um, and it's actually one of the songs that was written for the movie rather than being uh, in the stage show. So in the stage show, there's a song there called an ordinary couple. And that makes sense to me. I didn't know this until fairly recently, all things considered, but even when I was a kid and I was watching this movie, I kind of thought that something good fit in weird. Like it didn't feel like it (laughs) had anything to do with the rest of the story. uh, Even compared to the song that has to do with, schnitzel with noodles and this one that's always relevant i mean 
long live schnitzel with noodles, but, <laughs> but the, uh, but something good I thought felt a little bit stapled in. And, and the reason of course is that it was stapled. Uh, but it's a, it's a very pretty duet sung by Julie Andrews, of course, and Bill Lee, who was dubbing Christopher Plummer. Um, and I, oh my God, am I about to do lyrics study? Oh boy. Okay. So <laughs> the parts converge. Oh my gosh. Hey, I gave you a dude who, who is doing a Johnny Greenwood in part one of this. That's so okay. Can I can study. do a little bit of lyric stuff. So, um, the pre-chorus is for here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should, but somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. So there's that line that they they go back to, this idea where maybe it's not smart for them to be in love with each other, or maybe it's not predictable, or maybe they they don't deserve it, which I think is a really interesting thought, that they don't necessarily deserve each other. Uh, maybe Maria, who is the world's biggest klutz, uh, doesn't deserve this this very uh, put-together U-boat captain, and maybe this U-boat captain who is so stern and, and you know, was a U-boat captain, doesn't deserve this, this beautiful young woman, but something good must have been in their past. They must have done something good, which, which makes it possible for them to have found each other and to, to fall in love and to be together. So that idea, I mean, it's, it's at least slightly more original than doing climb every mountain (laughs) or some other, some other lyric like that. Um, quick show trivia while we're resetting here. Do you remember the last, the last movie I did that had a quote as a as a theme um the last one i remember doing is cabaret but i'm sort of assuming no that was that was it (laughs) just it's very funny that (laughs) the two nazi musicals are the ones that i do quotes from same as it ever was we we have a type (laughs) Yeah, it's Nazi musicals, obviously. So, What else do people expect from us? (laughs) What else do people expect from Broadway adaptations? There's always more Nazis in there. So the the two films that I thought about is having this idea of something good, of people who, who manage to get something good, even if it doesn't always feel like they deserved it, or even if they can't understand why they deserve it. Uh, the two that I've chosen are not like each other. One of them, they're both from the 1980s. Uh, one of them is from 86. The other is from 88. Uh, the first one that we're going to talk about is Crossing Delancey, which is about as perfect a romantic comedy as I think I've ever seen. Uh, one that is just deployed brilliantly. Everything about it is just balanced so, so well. Uh, that is a... Uh, a film directed by Joan Micklin Silver and which stars Amy Irving and Peter Riegert. And our other option is Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is not about hunting Michael Mann, but which is about hunting a serial killer. Uh, this one, of course, is technically a Hannibal Lecter movie. 
Uh, it stars William Peterson as Will Graham uh, and other characters who you know from from Silence of the Lambs are are here, uh, even if you don't think about Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter or you don't think about Dennis Farina as Jack Crawford. Though I encourage you to start thinking about Jack Crawford as being more like Dennis Farina than Scott Shepard. Yeah, or Scott Glenn, rather. Anyway, those are our two. We are going to start with, with Crossing Delancey. Have you seen this one before? No, I was mostly thinking about for a second how Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins do kind of look similar. <laughs> Tell you what, Brian Cox is fat in... Um, in Manhunter, and I say this as a fat guy, but like he's he's around in the face, in the face. They look <laughs> um, uh, anyway, no, I haven't seen this one. It's okay, a fun, it's a fun title though. Oh, Crossing Delancey is just an absolutely magical movie. So this is this is a film set in late eighties New York, um, and Amy Irving is playing Izzy who is this very cultured woman in her early 30s. Uh, She works at a very prestigious bookstore. So she's very involved with literary circles and literary types and authors and publishers. And she just really feels like she's reached the, the apex of class. You know, like she feels like she's really made it into this really wonderful world of intelligent and, and, you know, cultured people that she has become one of the cognoscenti. And she really, really values that. It is, it is maybe even her primary value, just this idea that she is part of this, this literary elite, even though she's not personally a writer, but she rubs shoulders with these people. There's a line in there about how she has the personal number for Isaac Bashevis singer and can like call him up anytime she wants to and talk to him. So like there are, there are things like that, that she just really values. And the reason she values them so much is because Izzy is a Jewish girl from the lower East side who comes from a very traditional background. Uh, her parents have moved to Florida like Jerry Seinfeld's parents, but they, I guess they got there first, but her parents are, are no longer in New York, so she spends a lot of time... What? What year is this movie? 88. Nah. I don't know. Seinfeld starts in 89. <laughs> parents are already down there. No. Yeah. All right. Okay. Maybe... Maybe, <clears throat> maybe they all went together. Maybe the Grossmans and the and the Seinfelds are fighting about condo presidencies and, and whatnot. Uh, Almost certainly. Almost certainly. So the um, the person who she's most connected to in in New York, who's like not a friend or a boss at the at the bookstore, is her buddy, um, Rizal Boyzak, who uh, is a classic actress of like Yiddish stage and vaudeville and stuff. This I think this is the only movie she ever did. She's great. Uh, she of course is a very traditional Jewish grandmother. Uh, and the twist in this movie is that her body has set her up with a matchmaker, uh, with a marriage broker who is being played very loudly uh, by Sylvia Miles. And Mrs. Mandelbaum 
has set up a, a you know a, a date at the very least between Izzy and Sam Posner. Uh, Sam Posner is played by Riegert. He is a pickle man, which which is a great way to describe his profession, which is that he makes and sells pickles. Yeah, go ahead. I want to be a pickle man. No, I was just going to say um, the Seinfelds are acquaintances with Mandelbaums. She does not chant it. <laughs> no. Even though the, the Mandelbaum chant is one of one of the things that makes me just most inexplicably like teary-eyed as I watch Seinfeld episodes. I just like cry laughing when that happens. Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 this kind of movie, honestly. So she's like, she's trying to get her granddaughter to to meet someone nice, um, but Izzy is horrified, of course, because she sees this as like the most the most Jewish ghetto, the most like shtetl kind of thing imaginable, and and she, of course, sees herself as you know one of the one of the fancy pants people of of uptown new york and not one of the people who i mean belongs on the lower east side someone who's from there someone who someone who um was made there and so she has a couple dates with with sam she is surprised at first by him because he is like a normal dude um peter regert who i think I don't know. If you know him, maybe you know him from Animal House, <laughs> which is kind of a funny thought. Um, of course, I think of him primarily from Local Hero, but that's because I'm a Bill Forsyth fan. But he's, I mean, he's just a very like normal down-to-earth guy. He's very confident. Uh, he's, he's also proud in a way that I think is really attractive. So Izzy keeps treating him like he's the kind of person that she doesn't want to be like at one point she defines the word ambivalent for him and he's like i know what ambivalent means like there's just this this sort of sharpness and pride and intelligence in him where he can see through a lot of her pretensions uh but of course he is completely spellbound by her because he's like harbored this crush on her for, for multiple years. Cause of course he's seen her in the neighborhood with her grandmother and he is, he basically isn't into the idea of marriage brokering either. But when Mrs. Mandelbaum comes by and shows him the picture of her, he's like, well, this is an opportunity for, for me to meet her. This is a way in as opposed to just stopping some woman on the street. So that's the, that's the basic premise of, of crossing to Lancy. Um, anything about this so far? I feel like this one, I feel silly after not doing any plot for sound of music that we're doing so much plot for this, but I think, I think this one needs a little bit more plot background. I think this is one. <clears throat> I think this one is certainly less well known than the Sound of Music. So <laughs> the plot mm-hmm. background, yeah. So the plot background helps. Um, I don't know. F- funny Yiddish people. I'm. I'm in. Uh, you didn't need to say more, but <laughs> I enjoy all of the details here, especially being a pickle man. <laughs> yeah, he he makes. It's a family pickle business. His father did pickles, and now he does pickles, and he's got like the the stand outside on the street, and you know, taking taking pickles, putting it in jars, and giving it to people. Mandelbaum's have a crepe business. Just saying. 
<laughs> so the the way that this goes is like the structure of the movie is that the person who Izzy is most interested in is a Dutch American writer named Anton Maas, who is played by Jerwin Crabbe, who people will probably know as the bad guy in The Fugitive. He is playing a very similar character here, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, but he is the the erudite and and lettered man who Izzy, of course, sort of sees herself being with. Um, I mean, the fact that he's reasonably handsome in his own way is nice, but he is essentially the kind of person who she would like to end up with. She would like to be able to say, not only am I this literary knowledgeable in-group person, but here I am married to a novelist. And of course, that's she sort of like centered her crush on him. But the more she gets to know about Sam, obviously it gets more and more interesting to her. Just because Sam is is perpetually different than she expects him to be. So the first time they meet, she gets this story from, from Sam who, you know, knows that she is not excited about being at a date set up by her grandmother and the marriage broker. Uh, so she is... She's being very clear about, like, this isn't how I would meet people. This isn't something I'm doing for you. I'm sorry, but this is for my grandmother. And he just sort of stops her and says, I have a friend who works in imports and wore this one kind of hat for ages. And then one day the wind came and just blew this, this little cap off his head. And it got smushed by a truck. And so he had to go across the street he had to cross Delancey this is the title he had to cross Delancey and get himself a new hat and he gets a new hat it's a very different kind of hat and he gets engaged not long after and he says the reason he gets engaged he knew the woman the woman knew him but she couldn't see his eyes and now that he's got the new hat she can see his eyes and there's like this this very it's it's the the Sam guarantee in this movie and that he is very practical and very smart, but there's also something just incredibly romantic about the story. And then of course, a few days later, he sends her a hat, uh, which she, it's very funny because hats are dumb. And I mean, I've watched enough episodes of Glee to know that hats are stupid. And it's, there's a very funny moment. Um, where her two co-workers, one of whom is played by David Hyde Pierce, who has a cello in a lot of this movie, it's it's very strange. But her two co-workers see her come in wearing this hat, and they're like, oh, it's the return of Annie Hall. And, of course, they're making fun of her for it. And she really likes the hat, even if she is not really sure what to do with herself when she like wears the hat and like goes to thank him for it. But of course sees his hands and all the pickle juice and, and, you know, being, you know, basically the old world Jewish guy again, who she doesn't want to be with, even though there's nothing particularly old world about him. He's a very modern, very sensible person. So that's the, that's the center of it. And she just sort of goes back and forth throughout the movie of like being interested in him and then 
pushing him away and then being interested in him and then pushing him away and setting him up with someone else and then not wanting to set him up with someone else. And basically one of the reasons, you know, this is a great romantic comedy is because you want to throttle the heroine, which I think is the proof in the pudding for most of them. So yes, the point of, of any romantic comedy is that you're supposed to know, uh, who the right guy is, even if the the lady in question refuses to recognize that, that he's the right guy. And throughout this entire movie, she's just so frustrating because she just really wants to be with the guy who makes her feel the way that she aspires to be, as opposed to the guy who makes her feel good, which I think is a very relatable thing that a lot of us, especially when we're, I say this as someone who's not even 33 yet, but like, when we're trying to like decide who we are, I think a lot of us definitely want to project to an image rather than projecting to something which might be more honestly good for us as people. And so eventually she blows off a date with with Sam at her grandmother's place because she basically gets invited to Anton's apartment and they're like getting hot and heavy and then he's like, it's really exciting that you're going to be my new assistant because the goal here is for him to hire a new assistant, a new person to do uh, all of his like bookkeeping and secretarial stuff and administrative work for him. So he doesn't have to. And basically we have seen what his last secretary looked like. And she was a younger person who was very clearly sleeping with him. And Izzy is, offended finally by the fact that that Anton only wants her for you know some sexual throwaway stuff and then he'll go get a new secretary eventually after her uh, as she is being offered this job and she goes back to her grandmother's apartment where she's supposed to be going and she is horrified because it doesn't look like Sam is still there it is of course very very late um and she doesn't really expect him to be there, but then he walks in from from the porch, from the from the balcony. I should say it's not. It's a. It's definitely not. <laughs> it's definitely not a porch because they are many stories up. So he comes in from the balcony, and there is this conversation that they that they have with one another. Uh, they're sitting there drinking coffee, and she's like, "I smell something." And she's like, is it vanilla? And he's like, yeah, it's vanilla. Uh, I learned from my dad that after a day of work, you you have to like bathe your hands in vanilla and milk to make the, the pickle smell go away. And he's trying to explain to her um, how he how he feels about her. And he says that he prayed the uh, the prayer for the planting of new trees. And there's like all of this incredibly romantic stuff with vanilla and coffee and prayers about trees and all of that stuff. And then they start dancing uh, to the song and the two of them. And by the two of them, I mean the one of them, idiot. <laughs> the schmuck who who should have understood earlier um finally gets this guy and it is a it is a truly romantic movie and 
what stands out after the first viewing, and even on the second one, is just like, why does she get him? Like, what exactly does she do that she deserves this romantic, intelligent, stable, mature man? And you start to think about what the something good is. And the something good is that as much as she has protested about trying not to be, you know, the Jewish woman from the Lower East Side, she's never entirely given it up. She's never rejected that idea entirely. She has always gone back to her grandmother. She has been taking care of her grandmother. She has listened to her grandmother. She has humored her grandmother. And she loves her. And the fact that she has never, like, actively rejected her Bubby is the reason that she can have Sam. Because she has done something good. Even when she is protesting and saying, I'm not this person, I'm actually, you know, I'm actually a Gentile, for all you know, uh, who who is part of this, this fancy world with, um with the literary elite and the, the fine the fine champagne drinking people of of uptown. I'm still this person who continues to come back to my grandmother. I'm still someone who will never, does not reject the the background, the culture that I have. And that's something good is the reason that she can end up with a guy who is frankly perfect for her. And I think that's one of the reasons why this film ends up being as romantic as it is, because even it's, there's never, there's never a time where you can actually actively say like, I don't understand what he sees in her. I don't understand what she sees in him. I don't get the sense. In other words, that if these people were not the two leads in a movie that they would end up together, um, because she manages to to see the best of her, like her own upbringing and her own background in a guy who doesn't push it down her throat or anything, but someone who she can only have been connected to because of her background in the first place. And that to me is just a, a really romantic idea and a really interesting one. Sorry for spoilers, everyone, <laughs> but otherwise we wouldn't know what the something good was. Also, it's a romantic comedy, so we all know what's what's going to happen. If you get a DVD of this, Peter Riegert's on the cover. Like, <laughs> it's very clear what what the deal is with this one. Uh, any any thoughts about Crossing to Lancy? No, I don't. <clears throat> Not really. It sounds really fun. Um, I think you make a good case for it. I don't really have anything else here. Um, I I would just echo. Yeah, like. It's a romantic comedy. There's not really spoilers. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm trying to see if there are some good, some good lines in here that I want to, I want to like pull out. I think, I think what I like most is at the very end, Sam basically got her grandmother drunk because <laughs> they were just there together and they had nothing else to do. So he gets her grandma like drunk on schnapps and she like passes out on the couch and falls asleep. And towards the, towards the end, she like wakes up and is like, who is that man? What is he doing in my apartment? Where am I? What year, like doing the, what year is it bit? 
and like Izzy is like genuinely a little bit worried and like she goes to set up her grandmother's bed and meanwhile Bubby looks at Sam and is like good job this is a good teamwork by the two of us like there's this this really wonderful like we are going to manipulate her into doing what's best for her no matter what thing and it all comes from this place of of great affection and real goofiness in the case of her of her grandmother um Rizal Boyzak is is so good in this. Like everybody is really good in this, but she is just just absolutely no notes for her. She is giving just a terrific supporting performance in this movie. All right, and now for something completely different. Um, here's Manhunter. <laughs> so, can we have have I done my my Manhunter take on the podcast yet? Have we done this before? I don't know when else it would have come up, so I don't think so. Okay. Um, first of all, have you seen this one? No, actually. Okay, so... I mean, that's appropriate, right? Like, last episode... Last episode, I had only heard one. This episode, you've only seen one. This feels yeah. this feels fair to me. Um, so my Manhunter take is that this is, like, not, not just better than Silence of the Lambs, but is way better than Silence of the Lambs. I just think that this is an absolutely incredible movie, which gets at so many of the ideas in Silence of the Lambs just with so much more heft and power, whether it's being told visually or being done through dialogue. I just think this is so much better. And I understand that the AFI will never let me in uh, after saying that, as opposed <laughs> possible that some of my family members will reject me for saying something like that but but i just think manhunter is is unimpeachably great just a truly great investigative movie uh, a truly great film about crime and about tracking down a killer uh and of course there are so many of these there are so many investigative movies and one of the things that i think manhunter does the best out of all of these is really thinking about the toll it takes on the person. And you think about other movies that do this. So let's take um, Silence of the Lambs for an, for example. I think it it takes a toll on Clarice to get up close and personal with with Hannibal Lecter. Take Zodiac. The problems with chasing down the Zodiac killer in this are mostly interpersonal. Like Jake Gyllenhaal loses his family in doing this. Anthony Edwards can't keep up with his family anymore. And of course, when he leaves, then Mark Ruffalo loses his family because Anthony Edwards is his family in that. And like, there's a lot of that in that film. But I don't think either one of those, and I don't think many films about this, really get at what it's like to be the person who is hunting down a serial killer and trying to think like them? And what does it mean to think like a serial killer and then to live in that? Like, at what point does a person who is honestly trying to catch these people before they can kill anybody else, someone who feels the pressure of trying to save lives, someone who, as um, as Will Graham puts it, he sees the pictures of the first two families that the that the serial killer who is being called the tooth fairy in the press because he likes biting. Um, he sees the, 
the two families that the tooth fairy has killed already. And the way he thinks about it, he doesn't see the first two. He sees the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And he's retired on purpose because he's the guy who caught Hannibal Lecter. And the, the process of searching for him and having that kind of that kind of sickness in his head, that was the thing that, like, after Lecter attacked him, he still brought him in, but, like, Lecter attacked him, so, like, there was a physical component of being injured after that, but there was also the mental component of, I have been thinking, like, this truly evil, this truly, maybe he's insane, uh, but at the very least, this incredibly amoral individual, and it has broken me to think and to be like that. And that's something that's where the movie starts. Like the movie starts with him after he's retired from the FBI. He has a wife, he has a kid uh, and they're like living on the beach somewhere. (laughs) There's a lot of William Peterson in short shorts in this movie when he's on the beach. It's just like, it's a very eighties look. Um, But he is, he's basically tried to run away from it because there's been this long stint in the hospital and then a longer stint in the psychiatric wing so much so that he is even a little bit estranged from his family because it's it's taken such a toll on him. But of course, because he's the best, um, Jack Crawford uh, comes over and shows him the pictures because he knows that's going to rope him back in. And so he's going to track down the Tooth Fairy as as best he can with all of the the potential dangers to him that that implies. Like he is taking on... Um, a great deal of personal risk because here's a guy who who was in a psychiatric um, ward for treatment after the last time he did this and now he's going back to almost literally the same the same scenario and knowing that that's going to endanger his his mental health even more than his physical health so that's the basic premise of of this one um have you seen Red Dragon or Red Red Dragon? Uh, I was just about to say. So this is Red Dragon because yeah, I've, uh, I'm familiar with the book and the. I don't remember what year Red Dragon. I think it's O two. O two. Yeah, that seems right. I've seen that. Um, so yeah, as you were talking, I was like, oh wait, I do know mm-hmm. this kind of. <laughs> um, I guess I should watch it now after your endorsement and glowing endorsement yeah and me actually knowing what it is this is why we got the cold takes out early (laughs) (laughs) so had to save it for something real good so have you seen red dragon no i was actually gonna watch it yesterday i just kind of ran out of time um i i it's been a long time since i've seen it but i remember liking it (laughs) yeah I, i don't know how it'll stand up in your uh or to your um uh, I don't know. Extreme love for Manhunter, but it's it's distinctly possible that it it won't quite have the same the same energy because like Hannibal Lecter is a is a very minor character in this. Uh, Brian Cox has a few scenes which are which are good. Like I enjoy Brian Cox in this role a lot. Um, I keep thinking about how <laughs> non rhotic he is. So like, I, there's just like this one, there are a lot of lines in this movie that are funny when they shouldn't be, or they're funny because they're so earnest or, or in the case of Hannibal Lecter stuff actively put on. And he's like, 
manipulating a phone so he can get Will Graham's home phone number. And he's like talking to the operator and he's saying, I don't have the use of my arms. <laughs> it's just there's something very Schwarzenegger about it. And it just makes me laugh. It has nothing to do with anything I'm talking about. It just sort of gets me. I will, I will tell you that with, uh, <clears throat> with red dragon, the problem is the Brett Ratner of it all, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember enjoying it. I don't think it's going to, I certainly don't think you'll like it more than Manhunter, just based on it being directed by Brett Ratner. But like, this is the one where he is not like ruining at all. <laughs> yeah. Think. Yeah. I mean, at least Ed Norton is playing Will Graham in that. I feel like that's a Norton's good fit. Ray Fiennes is in there. Like, like the cast is good. Um, so yeah, they, they mostly hold it together. <laughs> So, yeah, I, sh- I probably should have prefaced with that. But yes, this is Red Dragon. It is actively based on Red Dragon. Um, so and I kind of know what's happening. You do. Yes, this one, this yeah. one, you should you should have the, the background. Uh, but the the film sort of progresses in a very procedural way. Um, it's it's funny because it came out at the wrong time. I think. I don't know a lot about TV, but isn't William Peterson like a CSI guy? Didn't he like go on to be on CSI? Um, I know a little bit about TV, but it doesn't involve CSI. So I can like, I'm pretty sure he's one of the original CSI people. And there is this movie really foreshadows the way that people are going to look at like criminal movies and television. He is. Yes, he's on CSI. Oh, he was on straight up CSI, and now <clears throat> he's going to be on CSI Vegas, I think. Now, yeah, of course. Okay, so started on it, but an OG CSI guy. Yes. Okay. As uh, Gil Grissom for fifteen years on oh. like on straight up CSI. <laughs> That's why I don't have a lot of Will Peterson movie roles in my head, because apparently he was on television for a decade and a half. <laughs> um, let's see. He starred in the films To Live and Die in L.A., Manhunter, Young Guns 2, Fear, The Contender, uh, and Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. <laughs> oh, and Detachment. Yep. Yep. That's why I just know him from Manhunter. <laughs> I, there's more in there. Those are the ones listed, though. Um, yeah, nothing else here stands out. I think he was just doing CSI. <laughs> sounds like he was making that sweet, sweet syndicated television money, yep. which more power to anyone who manages to figure that out. Yep. But he um, he is he's sort of presaging this role that you're going to see in CSI where there's a lot of that, which I mean, has been justly criticized. Uh, for the presentation is these people are like techno science magicians who can figure out anything. But I don't think in 1986 that people were expecting so much CSI stuff. And the movie was not successful when it came out. I think it would, it would obviously be gangbusters now, Uh, not just because people know who Hannibal Lecter is, but also because people, I think all of us kind of expect whether or not we are CSI people and neither one of us is, uh, but people expect some level of CSI. How do you know that about me? <laughs> Are you an NCIS person? Oh God! No. <laughs> um, Thank you for saying that. I don't. I don't like any of them. Um, this is tangentially related. I have 
One of the biggest TV arguments that I've gotten into the most is how I hate Bones and everyone else seems to love Bones. And it's mostly along the lines of what you just said of like, I resent the unwavering belief in like technical wizardry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, I found myself having that argument at least a few times and like it actually being somewhat contentious and it's just like these no, these things are stupid. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm definitely not a fan of these things. Give me, give me my Law and Order for syndicated crime television. <laughs> so the parts of this that are probably the best, and the reason, the reason why I'm interested in this as a something good, I must have done something good style movie, is because there's a scene, you know, like two thirds, three quarters of the way through the film. Um, it's become clear that Graham's involvement and his checking in with Hannibal Lecter has alerted uh, Francis Dollarhide, the tooth fairy, or, I mean, he has a much more William Blake-ish approach to himself rather than fairy tale things. But, but um, also incredible name. I think we underrate that Francis Dollarhide. Yeah. I mean, at least as good as Hannibal Lecter. And how close it is to formaldehyde. It's oh, it's a it's a great it's a great name. Uh, so Dollarhide is now cognizant of of Will's family, and of course Will is trying to protect his family at the same time. So they've been moved to the safe house, and he and his son are off getting groceries, basically. And he found out at the house that his son didn't want to leave him alone. Uh, with his mom and he's like freaked out because his dad has been away and he remembers some of what happened when when his dad was in the hospital but like it's sort of muddied in his head and so he's like genuinely scared now that his dad is on the case again that he's going to do something terrible to his mother which first of all just like we started with the whole paranoid thing with the sound of music but just what a thought to like your son is so afraid of you for, you know, you trying to do a good thing for society, for strangers, whatever. Uh, but your son is so terrified of you that he won't leave you alone in the house with the woman you love. It's just like a incredibly frightening thought. So he and his son go out to get groceries. And there is this absolutely remarkable scene that takes place surrounded by breakfast cereal and jello and coffee <laughs> stuff like that um where where graham is basically honest with kevin about what happened and he said i have to for my job i had to build these feelings which is a great phrase uh but i had to build these feelings in my mind so that i could catch these people i'm gonna find a direct quote from this because i just love the way that this is put I tried to build feelings in my imagination like the killer had so that I would know why he did what he did because that would help me find him. But after my body got okay, I still had his thoughts going around in my head and Kevin's trying to ask him what it is. And he says, they're the ugliest thoughts of the world. And he just sort of like turns away and the kid uh, sort of has this moment of understanding. He's like, so you like this Folger stuff? Mom likes it. Like it just, it's a very, it's a very innocent moment and it's funny. Uh, but the kid just sort of like takes the Folgers and puts it in the basket. And I just find that to be such a, 
such a gorgeous moment in this movie and really what sets it apart even more than the the CSI stuff or, or what have you. But this is going back to my earlier idea about this. Will Graham has done something good. Like he has saved other people. Um, he will go on to save Joan Allen in this, which he does essentially by going away from what everyone thinks is the right answer. Like when they storm Dollar Hyde's house, uh, the SWAT team gets blown away. <laughs> like Dollar Hyde is waiting at the front door with a shotgun um, and he gets there before they do. So he is probably actively the one who is most responsible for saving Reba even more like even in the moment and outside of the moment. Cause he's the guy who like tracks down dollar hide figures out what he wants, figures out the visual sensing, uh, the stuff with the mirrors, the stuff with the filming, all of that. And when he, when he goes in there and like literally busts through the window to the thunderous sounds of Inagata de Vida, which do they have that in red dragon or no? Um, I don't remember it being there, but it's also been long enough that I don't think it's there. Or if it is, it's probably like a chopped and screwed version. <laughs> not to not to like get too far off the point. Both these movies have incredible soundtracks. The soundtrack work on on Manhunter is just really spectacular. Anyway, um, but the Tooth Fairy is playing in Agata de Vida, and it's like filling the entire house and like in the woods and everything crashes through the window in slow motion to it. It's a very Michael Mann moment. I love that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were. I just, I, no, I just love that. No notes. <laughs> it's, it's, I was jamming too in Agata de Vida. It's, it's great. It's really Which great. Which is a song that gets better the louder it is played. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, he's the, I mean, he's the one who, who saves her and eventually he comes back to, um, he comes back to his family and they can all stand on the beach together and, and be whole. But I'm just, I was thinking about this movie in that something good manner. And it's not that he hasn't done something good, but that he is so horrified by himself that he is afraid that he is incapable of doing something good or that it is always going to be profaned by how closely his mind mirrors the minds of serial killers like Hannibal Lecter, like Francis Tollerhide. And he, he keeps thinking about how close he is to Hannibal Lecter. And of course, Hannibal Lecter, who is imprisoned in, of all places, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, um, which <laughs> this movie like sort of takes place in the Southeast, which I like about it. It's got some, some nice shots of, of Atlanta, Birmingham, etc. But like they're saying, Oh yeah, Hannibal Lecter's in Baltimore. And then as he runs out of Hannibal Lecter's cell, he is doing it down the stairs at the high museum of art where I have been several times. It's a very funny moment and also terrific because the high museum is a great place to put crazy people. And he is just like running away from Lecter telling him, you know, the reason you could catch me is because we're like one another. The reason that you could actually get me, the reason you had that snap recognition that he tells Kevin about in the grocery store, that has everything to do with the fact that our minds just work the same way. You know, that you are pretty close to me and that you are not that different 
from from me the serial killer even if you're a criminal profiler your job is to be me and what i just i find it so interesting that at the end of the film graham knows that he has done something good the fact that he can return to his family he can go back to the beach with them and the the cute house i mean really on the beach where they're together uh, where he can stand in the the sun with his wife, and his, their kid can like throw rocks into the ocean as the as the end credits come over. It's all proof that he has done something good, uh, even if he believes that he is someone who is as dangerous in his own way as the Tooth Fairy. Other other Manhunter slash Red Dragony thoughts. Um, <clears throat> sort of. So there was, there's a question and observation in here because I was struck by your point that this movie would probably be much better received today, um, given what it has helped usher in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I bring to that conversation, there was a Hannibal TV series. I've not watched it, but I know it was very lovingly received by critics. Uh, and I think it had trouble the whole time just like staying on TV. Um, like, I think it's one of those ones that ended and all the critics were like, no, this should come back. This was one of the best things going. And I know it's solar sites to prove if nothing else speaks to you. Um, so I don't know. I guess I just kind of like, I like that point. And then I started bouncing it against like, well, we had a Hannibal TV series and like very well done. Uh, I don't know that the ratings were there, but like it had Mads Mikkelsen, uh, Jillian Anderson was in there at some point. Like it had everything. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious why that one uh, comparatively failed, I guess, like just in terms of popularity compared to like a CSI or NCIS or whatever else. Um, and then I also started wondering, so if you, like ingest all the Hannibal Lecter universe. Will you put will you put all of it above Silence of the Lambs? So I think the reason why Hannibal, beloved by critics, had a hard time in the in the early days of streaming. Like I think that was the biggest problem is because oh. it's it's like a 2007 to 2009 thing, right? Like around the time that Netflix is coming up. Um, I think it was right after we graduated. Hannibal the TV show? Yeah. Um, oh, no, you're right. It's oh, it's 13 to 15. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's, that's even worse for it, honestly. That's sort of like network yeah. TV is having a hard time knowing what its numbers mean and like not quite at the point where they recognize that having a devoted group of people watching is actually better than trying to make it as big as possible. It is a Brian Fuller thing. Uh, so Brian Fuller is the guy behind Dead Like Me and Pushing Daisies. I love Pushing Daisies. And um, I mean, Pushing okay. Daisies had the same problem where it was like, it never quite reached the wide enough audience, but it developed like cult-like fandom for what it was what it was actually doing. For the true subtitles heads out there, uh, on, a, on an older podcast of ours, we have some Pushing Daisies content. Mm-hmm. So you can find that if you're interested. <laughs> if you really want to get into the lore. Yeah, but that's like, 
that's I think that was the issue is that it's it's so stylized and there was they were constantly pushing the boundaries of what what was network television appropriate like you will like read people uh, reminiscing about Hannibal and just being like they put that on like NBC or something like they just put that on NBC in primetime and there was a lot of that sort of gross out stuff if I think if the idea had come around in the present time and they had made it into something for like showtime or something. I just think it would have, it would have hit more people. H- if you put it on HBO, it probably wins every Emmy. Yeah. I think it would have killed. Yeah. Um, and rightfully so by all accounts. Um, yeah. Then I, again, I just got interested in, would you put every piece of Hannibal content above silence of the lambs? I think that would be funny. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I, I don't. We, I don't know if you're going to be able to put Red Dragon over it, but I hope. I hope. You know what? You know, I know I can't because Hannibal is the the movie with Julianne Moore. Oh, I forgot that, about that. Oh my gosh, that movie's not good. Actually, when we did the Silence of the Lambs episode, and and I rewatched that, my wife and I watched Hannibal after that because I don't think she'd seen it. And I hadn't seen it since college. I'm just like, this movie's garbage. Like, this movie is just... It has one good image involving Ray Liotta, and the rest of it is just an absolute slog. I forgot that existed, blissfully. So, never mind. Moot conversation. Moot conversation. Glad we could talk about Hannibal, the TV <laughs> show, though. Go back and watch that, everyone. It I seems, still haven't, but I should. It's, it seems like more fun. All right, anything else on... Crossing Delancey or Manhunter before we talk about why they're both like the sound of music. Um, no, I'm really excited for that part because even though I knew they were going to be different coming in, it's still striking just <laughs> having them back to back. So let's spiel it up. I mean, these are just before I spiel it up. It is, these are two movies that I think are like truly great. Like not just like truly great in the sense of like, oh, these are wonderful pictures. Like it, I think these are both potentially like top 100 american movies of all time like i think they're both that good uh and i would why why did you say that like goofy i don't know maybe goofy's goofy's (laughs) not that far from me wherever i am but like i I guess i'm kind of like what persona is that like when you're just doing the magic of the movies thing (laughs) (laughs) Why the magic of the movies is goofy, I don't know. <laughs> but... I mean, I'd buy it. <laughs> Something ineffable, <laughs> just kind of silly. I like it. You'll... <laughs> Whatever the, the right answer there is, I have no idea. Um, but yes, in all seriousness and without no, goofy no, 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 at no, all. No. Less seriousness first. Uh, shout out to uh, a goofy movie, which phenomenal movie magic of the cinema like the sound of music fundamentally about parenthood <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and songs and, great songs and on the, that that um on the open road song is a absolute classic do not add me that song is great <laughs> these two movies are really good okay so the original movie uh, on the AFI list, and I think, is this number 40? I think this is number 40. I think we've hit number 40. Ooh. Uh, that is, of course, The Sound of Music, 
1965 Robert Wise movie that you don't have to have seen to have seen. And our theme for this week, I must have done something good. This idea of even if it was rocky along the way, even if I haven't been perfect, there is something good enough that I can get this happy ending. That's the idea that I wanted to go for. And that's nice and vague. That's nice and broad. So I thought I'd go with just two movies that I adore and think are tremendous. And our first option is Crossing Delancey, in which we have the story of a nice Jewish girl who doesn't want to be a nice Jewish girl anymore, who is in her early 30s and has decided that she wants to put away, you know, anything that doesn't make her seem like a... uh, Miss Porter's wasp, you know, like really wants to belong to that, to that Sally Draper side of society Mm -hmm. and who ends up getting something good because she never actually let it go because she always kept her grandmother. She always loved her. She always went back to her. And as long as she did that, she could never be Sally Draper. And then on the other side of things, we have Manhunter uh, in which Will Graham, someone who, I think in his heart of hearts really believes that there is a sickness and an evil in him equivalent to that of Hannibal Lecter or Francis Dollarhide can recognize that in himself. And that's the something good, uh, can go back to the goodness of his family, go back at having done things that save lives, protect people because, the difference between him and Lecter or the difference between him and Dollarhide is that he looks at he looks at that set of evil thoughts, the ugliest thoughts in the world, and instead of acting on them, can say they're the ugliest thoughts in the world. So those are our two movies. What do you think? <clears throat> this one's fun. Um, I think I know, but it's been very close the whole time, so it's been a tenuous I think I know what I'm doing here. Um I mean I am speaking to two of your your favorite subgenres here I between know. Jewish people in New York and psychological thrillers. So Yeah, yeah, I know. So as much as you pitch this as like two movies you love, you're really just torturing me. <laughs> Gotta go see them. Yeah, that's true. Um that is the ultimate takeaway here. These are two movies I do really want to watch now. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with Crossing Delancey um, because I guess just because of the more natural connection of wanting to escape something that you are or that's like important to you or your world. Um and ultimately finding some goodness in that um, or through it anyway, or whatever, uh, you know, however you want to phrase that. Um, Right. Manhunter's doing some of that too, but I don't know. I guess there's just a, like, there seems to be a more natural connection there to me. Um, And I'm going to run with that this time. I know sometimes I bristle against the, the kind of natural one, but um, I don't know. I, I just like how those two fit together. And I think the, you know, it's not the levity of it necessarily that like intrigues me most, but I think that's just more happenstance here. But I don't know, just sort of their <clears throat> journey of finding the something good that surely is there. Um, I'm just drawn to the connection between those two, I guess. Yeah. And of course, I, I 
did the U thing and picked two movies that I that I really love and knew that I would lose one and just decided to rip that Band-Aid off and go for it. Um, obviously very happy to, to see this one here, which I do think... Like as far as as far as eighties, nineties, two thousands romantic comedies go, it's this and when Harry met Sally and nothing else touches it. Like the those it, it is absolutely in that conversation with when Harry met Sally. Uh if I mean personally, on a cinematic level, I would probably put it a tick higher. We're just putting all of the hot takes at the end of this one after starting with cult takes. I'm just gonna say that uh having not seen it yet i'm gonna get on that bandwagon anyway and we can just pitch it as this one goes down a lot easier than woody allen at this point woody allen i was thinking of his rom-coms too oh yeah screw yeah screw that (laughs) i'll take crossing delancey over any hall any day of the week too that one's not that's not hard for me but like this one this one really is a a gorgeous movie there was a connection in my head that I didn't spell out there, but I was just trying to find a, a good narrative way to to pitch it. I don't think anyone has anything against Rob Reiner. No, I think <laughs> Rob Reiner seems like a basically normal human being. Good for him after all of this time. Yeah, so I was in the New York Jewishness of it all. But... Crossing Delancey is, is a movie, and I've written about this before, but there are a lot of there are a lot of movies that are like set in New York for this purpose. And it it really doesn't matter that they're in New York. New York is for the for the rubes, you know. It's for people to be like, oh my gosh, that's New York. Is that goofy too or no? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's New York. Um, go. Yeah. Go. So that's. <laughs> but Crossing to Lancy couldn't take place anywhere else. I mean, the title says so, but like down to the down to the to the DNA of the film. I just, it, it is absolutely a movie that has to be about that particular place, that particular time in New York. There's a specificity there that is just so wonderful. And it's a specificity that fills in that something good, which is a purposefully kind of nebulous idea. Um, because I wanted to, to get a little broad here uh, after, you know, the sound of music. <laughs> because we talked about that in such detail which is just a a movie which is like it has everything it feel it is really one of the stefan movies of all time this movie has everything lyrics about whiskers on kittens the nazis christopher Plummer, richard gazebo romances two gazebo romances richard hyden pretending to be related to anyone it's it's a and creepy ass Friedrich and Nicholas Hammond trying to mack on the woman playing his mother. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm sorry you listened. You can think about that in either order you want to. If you are interested in part one of this episode, which was extremely logical and made a lot more sense, uh, no, that no, don't don't give me that credit. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that credit. It was about trip hop about Portishead. Uh, you can find that along with links to both of our blogs, to his playlist, to my Letterboxd reviews. Uh, you can find information about us. You can find back episodes. And of course, the one we just did. All of that is available at subtitlespodcast.com. And we'll see you next time.